Hello everyone and welcome to episode 127 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and as always I'll be your host today. Now, you might be thinking, where is part two of the Michael Abensets and Empire Road episode that was due to come out this week? Well, as you can imagine, it's not here right now. We are taking a break uh, in between that series, even though um, my original plan was to put them out in two parts, one week after the other. However, there's just some pressing global issues at the moment that I just felt more compelled to speak about today. Um, And I guess they kind of do fit in the context of Guyana, um, as you know from the title. We're going to be thinking about um, Guyana at the moment and Venezuela and their alleged claims to a region of Guyana, a part of it called Esquibo. So that kind of, I guess, somehow, somewhere forms this little three-part Guyana series that was definitely not the plan when I first started um, the episodes on Michael Abensets and Empire Road um, as a Guyanese-born man. Um, and coming from that context, I don't know, it kind of all made sense that it would all weave in together. Um, and if you're listening to this super far in the future, then it won't even matter because you could have just listened to the part two anyway and then listen to this one after, unless you do like to listen chronologically, which is also absolutely fine. So before I get into that conversation and thinking about what is happening in Venezuela and Guyana. I wanted to put out a call for research participants. Now, if you've been here, you might know that I am a PhD student um, and I'm ex- I'm researching the experiences of West Indian children within the British education system in both the Caribbean and in Britain um, in the post-war era. So from about the late 1940s, in theory anyway, the late 1940s to the mid-1980s. But in reality, that actually means the 1960s because the majority of people that I am trying to find and interview arrived in the 1960s, 70s and 80s. And so I'm basically attempting um, to interview those people that migrated to this country, to Britain, as children, um, On paper, they would need to be born in 1975 or earlier, just to kind of get into the dates I'm looking into. Um, And they would obviously have had to have migrated from 1944 to 1985. um, And they would have to be educated in both the Caribbean and Britain um, at primary or secondary school level. Ideally migrating between the ages of 11 to 16, but if they've migrated in primary school, uh, that is also definitely uh, helpful and I would love to speak to them. Um... I am conducting interviews in person and have already started and it's been a really, um, I don't know what the word is, kind of cathartic but also very inspiring and encouraging experience interviewing people. It's probably one of my favourite parts of doing history, um, actually talking to people about their experiences of the historical moment, event or thing that I'm looking into. Um, And so I'm here because I realised that As much as um, there are so many people within my own community that I can speak to, I do need significantly more participants and this platform does go out to people. Um, You really do forget sometimes that you have a whole platform that you can use to support your academic work. But here I am um, asking for participants. If you would like more information about this, if this applies to you um, and you would like to and and are kind enough to give up some time to be interviewed by myself, then please do email me. um, Email me either at the history hotline although I'll then reply to you with my uh, academic email which is 
d.r.a.lincook at qmul.ac.uk but you can reach out to me anywhere and I will then get back to you via that email Um, so yeah that is my call for participants if that fits you or anybody that you know please feel free to pass it on I will also share um, the flyer with further information um, on my own social media and hit the history outline social media as well so that it is accessible and you can kind of have a look about what you might be getting yourself or someone else into before you put them forwards. Please don't put anyone forward that you haven't already asked um, because that's quite unfair to them. Um, and I don't really like to contact people that have no idea what they've been signed up for first. So thank you so much. Um, and if anybody fits the bill, I would love to hear from you. So I wanted to talk about um, Guyana today on this episode, but I also feel it appropriate to also mention ongoing genocides in Palestine, um, in particular in Gaza, um, and also in Congo. Um, And I think the thing is about having a platform or a a place to say things that people sometimes tune into, um, is that you kind of have to use that platform. Um, And whilst I don't know everything, um, I will never pretend to know everything um, about anything, um, but in particular, you know, global political issues and the histories of of countries outside the kind of small area of interest that I have academically. Um, I'll be honest, I don't know much about or didn't know much about what was happening in Congo, Palestine a little bit more so, I think probably because the conflict is so long, long term and has, I think, pretty much always been something within my consciousness, this idea of free Palestine. Um, and I think it is very important to to speak about these things. And so whilst I'm not going to necessarily do a whole episode about what's happening in Congo um, or Palestine, um, I, at this point, I guess pro- I'm prompting you as a listener, um, as someone that probably does care about what's happening outside of your own sphere of influence uh, and in the world, outside of your own country, to have a look at what's going on there to amplify um, um, voices that are are speaking out about the genocides in both these places Um, and for those that are being harmed, uh, that are being displaced, that are being killed, that are subject to extreme levels of violence, um, that we, you know, centre them in our conversations as opposed to celebrities that aren't saying anything or that are doing questionable and problematic things, we actually centre the issues and the, the struggles of the actual people that are being impacted. And I hope that this episode on Guyana will also think more so about the actual people that are being impacted, as opposed to, you know, these international and political regimes that don't actually really care about um, the lives of individual people, but just their profit lines and margins. Um, so... This is me amplifying um, the genocide in Congo, um, the ongoing genocide um, in Palestine and just asking you to, to take some time um, while you have it maybe and think about what's happening there and, and what you can do as just an ordinary Joe um, to potentially um, make a stand or, or have some kind of impact on the situation because as small as we are as individuals you know we all we all have seen I think over the past few months what the power the power of people power and for all its negatives the power of social media um, and what we are able to see and what we cannot really turn away from 
um, due to what's being shared uh, by those that are on the ground in those countries. Recording this podcast today um, and the research I've done for this episode and the things I've been watching on social media, um, especially regarding Palestine following that four-day quote-unquote ceasefire, which actually just really, to me, sounded like mental warfare um, and psychological torture because stopping the bombs for four days only to shower them down again on the fourth um doesn't seem humanitarian in any way shape or form to me um at all especially um when people were calling so loudly for a ceasefire and and continue to do so and rightly so um you know yeah all the things I've seen this week just making me feel like this world is a horrible place which is not something that I didn't already know um but I think seeing the real life examples every second on social media um is something that is different to maybe elements of this conflict that have gone on before um the advent of social media and its popularity but we have it now and we must use it for quote-unquote good um or to amplify these voices and these stories so another thing that is of seeming pressing urgency is what's going on in Guyana and it kind of I only saw the headlines um, as most people do with these things and never actually read anymore and for ages I was thinking oh yeah I need to read about this I need to read about this but I just didn't do it I didn't get a chance however I've actually sat down and read about it and it is wild what is going on um so why the question is the question on everybody's lips is first of all what's happening there but if you've done a tiny bit more reading on into it you the second question might be why does Venezuela claim this region um Escobo which is about I think it's about two-thirds of Guyana's territory um or land and if they obviously are making a claim to it um and suggesting that it should be theirs what will that look like and how will that impact Guyanese people um that are living on those lands in that place okay so currently um there is well there was a referendum on sunday sunday the 3rd of december 2023 um for venezuelans to vote um for the annexation of a territory in guyana which they have recently realized is extremely oil and mineral rich so all of this all of this upheaval all of this um disruption violence that might be raining down on guyanese people's lives is all because of money um it's always because of money it's always because of money and power and greed um, and this is no difference in this case it's the same in congo it's the same in palestine um whilst there might be slightly different variations and there might be the inclusion of of racism or of uh, tribalism or of different ethnic groups being pitted against each other the core of it all tends to be either greed power money um those those things that that seem to run the world um so the longer history of the region um kind of starts or we're going to start anyway where it's populated by native arawak people then joined by carib indians until christopher columbus of course he had to be in the story uh, comes along in 1498 to the coast of the guyanas then later on and i am very much paraphrasing a very much longer history walter raleigh um another explorer discoverer 
uh, that was in air quotes if you didn't know, um, in 1594 turns up, and then a Jacob Cornelis in 1597. And this basically kind of starts and leads to numerous battles and struggles by European colonizers to own different parts of the region. Um, then by the time you get to like the 17th and 18th century, all the colonies along the Guyana coast were converted into sugar plantations, hence names like Demerara, um, which was part um, of, of these kind of colonies. Um, Escribo was... Escribo? Escribo? I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I think it's Escribo. was a Dutch colony in the Guyanas. Um, Guyanas were made up of the French, a French Guyana. Um, there's also British Guyana um, in from 1831 to 1966, um, after the colonies of Berbis, Esquibo, Demerara are taken from the Dutch, merging them into a single colony. Suriname, also formerly part of Dutch Guiana, um, until 1814, together with uh, those three, Berbis, Esquibo and Demerara, until 1831. So there's a lot of movement, different um, European colonial powers taking over um taking land swapping hands you know changing but it was kind of consistently through the 17th and 18th century that they were very profitable sugar plantations um, and it's quite interesting and a, a point I've seen made on social media that kind of origins of this region uh, of Guyana of all the Guyanas um, is and the, the the point where African people find themselves in this land is them being transported over for labour, um, them being transported over because the land is fertile, sugar can be made, planted, um, grown and produced by these African people um, that are going to be doing that um, as enslaved people. Um, and so that can't be lost when we think about those people that are now impacted, um, the descendants of those enslaved people that still remain on that land, who are now being displaced once again, potentially, because this land is fertile, this land is rich in minerals, in oil, um, and these colonising, greedy, power-hungry uh, individuals would like to take their chunk out of that land once again um, to turn it into wealth for themselves. So these things are patterns... They say what well, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. Um, oh, here's a rhyme. So these wars continued on and off um, among these like three major powers, um, the Dutch, the French and the British, until um, a final kind of peace treaty was signed in 1814, the Convention of London, heavily favouring the British, um, and I quote, by this time, um, I think France are kind of moving a little bit further out the region, um, after well within the Euro Louisiana Purchase, they lose everything in that region except for Guadeloupe, Martinique, um, and French Guiana in that Caribbean region. The Dutch lose Berbis, um, Esquibo, and Demerara, and they're under British rule um, and form British Guiana. Um, and the Dutch keep Suriname, um, and and that continues on. Um, so Esquibo in this region we're speaking about becomes an official British territory on the 13th of August 1814, part of the Treaty of London, um, and it was merged with the colony of Demerara. Um, now, they how do they become then part of what is known as Latin America's most persistent border disputes? Um, because this new colony that's been formed has the Esquibo River as its west border with the Spanish um, Venezuela. And so Spain still claimed the region, 
um, of Venezuela. The Spanish did not contest this Treaty of London um, because they were also dealing with their own colonies who were struggling for independence. So Spain, instead of kind of battling the British and saying, actually, this um, Esquibo part should not not be for you, it should be for us, are actually dealing with their own internal issues where the populations of the countries that they've colonised are actually rising up for independence. And Spain and Portugal, I believe, have a kind of, I don't know if it's spoken or unspoken or written or within actually law, that they don't really go for the same, um, to colonise the same places. That's why you don't really see a Portuguese pres- presence much in the Caribbean, um, but you see it more so in South America, like Brazil, which they colonised. Um, and then um, Spain, do don't they don't kind of try to colonise places that Portugal are have colonized um, or are trying to colonize as well they have like this agreement so um, Portugal kind of don't find themselves in this conversation however are quite a large presence within South America um, as colonizers as well as the Spain who we know like a lot of um, South American countries are Spanish speaking and there's only one reason for that and that is colonization by the Spanish so these disputes have a very lengthy history and it's basically been Venezuela versus anyone that disputes the territories theirs um, as time has gone on. They battled the British for it, appealing for the, to the US. And this is where we, we start to fear. Because when the US get involved, they hmm, the US like to, to shoot first and bomb first and ask questions later, um, as we've seen in many global conflicts for oil in the past. <laughs> Iraq, <laughs> Afghanistan. So, um, you know, the tactics that the US have used in order to justify um, bringing armed military personnel into countries is terrifying. And the fact that Venezuela will appeal to the US for quote unquote help in this, as they have done in the past, is also terrifying and probably the most terrifying part of this issue. Um, Anyway, they did this in 1897. Yes, you heard it right, 1897, the late 19th century. They did this under the Monroe Doctrine and Britain agreed to let an international tribunal arbitrate the boundary in 1897. This went on for two years. There was a unanimous decision handed down in 1899, which awarded 94% of the disputed territory to British Guyana. Venezuela was unhappy, but accepted the boundary in 1905. So we would expect at that point it all to be settled. When I said it came down to unanimous decision, there was like a jury within this um, international tribunal arbitrate situation. Um, In 1958, the country, the county, sorry, of Esquibo was abolished when Guyana was subdivided into districts. So that's now no longer a county. Um, And this historical Esquiba was divided up um, into Guyanese administrative regions, um, which obviously is, you know, how they functioned and how they split up their country, just like anybody, any other country, you might split up in parishes, counties, regions, cities, whatever else. Anyway, in 1962, under a UN policy of decolonisation, Venezuela decided to renew its 19th century claim, the claim from 1897, that this... um, award was invalid essentially arguing that they knew that between Britain and Russia and Russia was one of the people that were involved in settling this dispute 
behind closed doors, they believe that there was like a political deal going on. And they got this from a memorandum from a US jurist in the case, which was published after his death. So basically, they decided or they have come to the realisation, Venezuela, that there were some underhand tactics in 1897, a political deal under the table that meant that Britain got support um, and led that led to the ruling of 1905. Now, whether this is the truth or not, um, it's what they're using to justify everything that's happening now. Um, at the end of the day, do, do I think it? I don't know. I don't know if it happened or not. It's, it's Britain. It's Britain and Russia. Who knows? Um, however, the British government rejected this claim, asserting the validity of the 1899 award, which obviously Venezuela have agreed to in 1905. Um, and at this point, um, the Guyanese government, British Guyanese government, who is then under different leadership, also rejected the claim um, and believe that they have the right um, to this region, to Esquibo. Um, and so as of today, the dispute remains unresolved and this is the issue. Now, why is this all come to head in 2023? Why had they been fine with it um, since, you know, the 1960s? Um, this also, I forgot to mention independence, Guyana's independence in 1966. Um, there was no deal made uh, between this newly formed independent Guyanese government and uh, Venezuela. And so because there was no resolution or because Venezuela didn't feel that they had been vindicated vindicated by a new decision, the the issue remains somewhat unresolved. Although for Guyana, they are very much resolved in the fact that this part of their, their land is theirs. Venezuela do not feel that it is. And that's the conversation that's happening. Um, why now? Well, um, the border dispute is being revitalised because we now know the region has oil and minerals. Um, and it's because ExxonMobil, who is, uh, I think, an oil, oil and gas company, I'm assuming. I think I see them having petrol stations in the US, so I'm assuming they have something to do with oil, gas, petrol. Um, they made one of the world's biggest recent oil discoveries in um, the region, just off its coast in 2015. So essentially, I believe that whoever is the owner of that land is now the owner of all of this oil that ExxonMobil has found and this is where the issues begin. Um, Venezuela obviously have laid claim to this land for a very long time um, suggesting that it's theirs alleging that the borders were drawn upon fairly and this is the issue when people start drawing lines on maps and saying this belongs to you and this belongs to you. It is so fascinating to me only as a historian, in no other way, as a human being, it's appalling. But as a historian, it's so fascinating how all of these lines which were drawn on maps by, you know, propertyed men in politics um, of European ancestry, descent, living and everything in regards to, to Europe and the West stood around maps carving them up. And these are now the issues that are plaguing society today because First of all, the lines were drawn in stupid ways, taking no consideration into people's ethnic groups, cultures, languages, um, ways of life, ways of living. We can see this in the Carib The Caribbean, as I said, we can't see it so much because they're literal islands. And even then, some of the islands are literally still carved up. We see this in countries in Africa where lines are drawn and split people in half, essentially, split groups of people, split tribes in half. We can see this in South America, in this case, with Esquibo and Guyana. 
and here we are today now dealing with this issue. So they had a referendum on Sunday where Venezuelans voted by a wide margin to approve this takeover of the oil-rich region in their neighbouring Guyana. Um, and it is basically leading to a lot of fear um, of what that annexation might look like. Um, this is a long-running territorial dispute, um, obviously fueled now by the potential for so much wealth. Um, the turnout for the... Um, referendum was allegedly around just over 50% which is some arguing that actually it means that do people really care in Venezuela about it because they didn't even they barely turned out however the ones that did turn out 90% of them uh, just over 90% um, voted yes to um, the questions on the ballot which were essentially asking you know should we do this um, there were five questions on the ballot. Um, but yeah, as I said, some news outlets are reporting that, you know, turnout was low. Do Venezuelans really care? Other news outlets are reporting that, well, 95 plus percent um, are in support of this. So, yeah, they do care and they're going to do this. Um, the escalating rhetoric and what might happen has prompted troops in the movement in the yeah troop movements in both um both regions to kind of activate in in some senses and my you know hope is that this does not become very violent um many residents in the predominantly indigenous region are fearful they're on edge they're scared they don't know what's going to happen to them um and i think unless the international community really stands together and stands up very loudly um i don't know how and i haven't read too much into like what the oil and, and mineral situation is you know how that would then be extracted if it was but I don't know the extraction of things like this never sound good on a on a climate level um anyway and so this climate-based displacement that might occur of, of the Guyanese people that live there is already one issue the violence that might come about due to an annexation is another issue um and they're just another conflict to be happening and to be on the cards um, at this time just is just abhorrent really um the way the news are reporting this um and i think this is the kind of final point I'm, i'll make is that you wouldn't really think that people actually live there you know you'd think it was just an empty mass with um some land that has oil and, and minerals it's always the case that I try and insert, I think, or I, yeah, I try to insert the humanity into these stories um, because people in this story are at risk of potential violence, invasion and worse, um, displacement, just like we are seeing in places like Congo and in Palestine. And while it might be for slightly different reasons, although in Congo not so much um, with the mining of cobalt, um, it's definitely the case that, that there are patterns with what's happening in the world right now and the root of it all is seemingly greed and wealth. Um, this region of Esquibo represents about two-thirds of Guyana's territory. That's a lot of space. Um, it's home to about 200,000 Guyanese people. Again, this is going to impact people severely um, if, it, if, and I, I pray, it won't ever escalate into something more violent. Um, so... This is one of those cases where, you know, seemingly things haven't started yet. Things haven't kicked off. And this is a time where we have to make as much noise as possible about what's happening in the region uh, before it gets to a point where we're thinking, oh, I wish we spoke up sooner. 
um, as we might be doing in the case of other regions like Palestine and Congo. So that is all I have to say about that. That's all I know, to be honest. Um, it's quite difficult doing, I think, like global politics uh, and history at such short notice um, on this podcast um, because for the most part, I have access to everything you do, um, you know, the internet, news reports um, and what, what people say that I know. So this is and always will be just a starting point for any of these historical, global, political issues that you might have an interest in or might want to think more about. So please do um, research more about it, find out about what's happening. Um, and also think about some of the other places around the world where similar things are happening. Cause I'm, I've mentioned two others, but um, I'm, I know there are others that I'm just ignorant to and don't know so much about um, where similar situations are happening or have happened in, in recent history or will happen in the future. So yeah, that's all for me today. And we will be back next week with part two of the episode with Dr. Michelle Yasantewa and Craig Riley speaking more about Michael Abenset, speaking more about Empire Road and speaking more about Guyana, because why not? Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a wonderful week. Um, goodbye. <laughs>